Dialogue Podcast. My name is Ellie Londi. I'm with here uh, Jay Scott Harden. Um, we are the hosts of the Up Your Dialogue Podcast. Um, uh, we have a special topic tonight, at least one that we think is special, where we're going to talk about the exploration of life from the agnostic perspective. Uh, so if that's not uh, an episode title that gets you going... I don't know what to say to you because um, this is going to be a good one. So buckle yourself in uh, for the Up Your Dialogue podcast. If you haven't listened to the podcast before, this is a podcast where we have uh, different lenses. We have different worldviews uh, and we discuss topics in, in alongside of those worldviews, uh, being the agnostic worldview versus the Christian worldview. Um, you don't get this on a lot of podcasts out there. It's just... Uh, we're just going to discuss one side of an issue, or we're going to attack the other person who doesn't agree with me. Um, that's not what we do here. So hopefully, uh, this type of format is something that you find beneficial. And uh, we are looking to do more of these on a regular basis. Right now, we actually record uh, the podcast on Sunday evening, and we try and get it uploaded on a Monday or Tuesday. If you start listening to this and you're waiting for new episodes to drop, that is basically the time frame on a weekly basis, unless we take you know a week or two off um, here and there, which we will probably do. But you can probably look for these podcasts on Mondays or Tuesdays to drop. So uh, this topic tonight, I'm going to let Jay Scott uh, take the reins on this. He is our in-house agnostic, um, and he's going to Tell us what the title of this podcast is and give us sort of a uh, introductory account of it. Thank you for joining us, and I'm glad we will uh, move forward on a weekly basis. I think that's great, uh, both for us and for listeners. And so we are, during the evening of Sunday, October 2nd, 2022, on a Sunday night, uh, bringing you the latest of the Up Your Dialogue podcast. I will take the lead on this being the acknowledged uh, resident agnostic of the show, that doesn't seem to be a lot of controversy on on uh, my input in that regard. That's one. It doesn't come up on every single episode, but we have talked about uh, oftentimes religion and agnosticism and atheism and other uh, spiritual beliefs, and we'll continue to do that. Tonight, we're going to uh, have an episode about the nature of existence in the universe, and uh, there are different ways of describing this, but I really wish for this particular episode that I had a deeply noble voice, but as our listeners know, I don't have this, and so I'm going to call it the space train of love, and what I mean by that, how it should be said is somebody like maybe a Neil deGrasse Tyson or somebody with bona fides in the deep voice area, and it really should sound something like the space train of love. And we'll get into exactly what that means and doesn't mean. Uh, and before we do, since I'm kind of doing the steering of this particular episode, uh, and we will be talking about matters religious and spiritual as we go through it, um, our listeners should know, and I, I want them to know, that our co-host, L.A. Londi, has had a recent experience where he went to a conference in Washington, D.C., uh, in regards to religious matters, and since this has never happened before, or at least on our podcast, I thought it would be uh, germane to at least ask him what kind of conference this is, and what happened there, and and uh, tell us anything about it, if if in general people don't know about it. Uh, sure. The um, conference was called Just Thinking About the Bible. It was held in D.C. 
um, uh, not too far from the Museum of the Bible. I don't know if anyone has heard of such a place or has ever maybe gone down uh, to the mall area. It's not too far from the mall area um, and walked past the building or maybe someone has visited. But it's actually a very interesting place that has many ancient, not only ancient Bibles, uh, historic Bibles, but they also have other ancient artifacts, um, uh, fragments of papyrus uh, that have very old writings. I think the oldest one being from the Gospel of John that dates all the way back to the late first century. Some people say early second century, so it could be anywhere between 90 AD all the way through to like 150 AD. And whenever you date these things, you have um, a range of dates. You can't pinpoint it specifically, but you can get close to a range. Uh, they have other things there too, uh, as far as old artifacts and uh, things you would find them. So uh, due to the nature of the conference, uh, that was included with the ticket. Um, so we were able to go down and see that. But basically, the idea is that um, due to something called textual criticism, um, the the Bible itself has come under. Uh, you could say uh, you could say an attack. At, I I don't know if I would specifically say attack, although some people do attack it. Uh, the Bart Ermans of of the world. Um, attack the authenticity of the scriptures. Um, but just trying to understand where the Bible came from, you know, all the Bibles that um, you see in the bookstore or that you see if you go to church, whether it's the King James Version, the ESV, the NIV, the NLT, the NASB, you know, where did all these different versions come from? Why are they different from each other? Um, what's the oldest manuscripts that we have? Uh, what's the oldest you know, full Bible that we have? Who are the people that wrote these things? Um, were they actually inspired? Um, do, can we understand that the Bible is word of God? Is it just some a bunch of human beings wrote down and it's nice stories that we can tell each other? You know, this is what the conference is basically about in a nutshell. Of course, it was put on by um, what's called the G3, uh, g3ministries.org. And it was also sponsored by the Just Thinking podcast which is a podcast that I would recommend to anyone who wants to understand things from a cultural perspective. It's um, two guys that are African-Americans, so they, um, they, they understand that point of view and that perspective. But they also give the perspective of racism, critical race theory, all these type of things from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective. So that's a good podcast. Justthinking.me, I believe, is the URL for that. You can check that out if you want. Um, but, you know, if you're interested in anything regarding the Bible and how that came about and what it is, um, then that would have been a good conference to go to. And the Museum of the Bible is a good place to check out. One of the speakers um, at the conference is actually um, it's very involved in textual criticism. And he gave a tour of the museum and talked about the, the various manuscripts, Bibles that were there, um, which was interesting. Uh, so you've got, you know, a copy of uh, Codex Sinaiticus, which is uh, in Codex Vaticanus. The real copy, obviously, is at the Vatican and uh, Codex Sinaiticus. So th those were a copy of, of the original. Um, but the originals of those are basically the full uh, Greek Bible, uh, the first one dating as far back to the 300s. Um, and, uh, you know, Erasmus's copy of the Greek New Testament, how Erasmus took it from the Latin Vulgate that Jerome uh, came up with in around 400 AD. Uh, and the Latin Vulgate basically reigned supreme all the way through for about a thousand years. Uh, only people that could read Latin really had the Bible, uh, could read the Bible. Uh, just about everybody in that 1,000 years heard the Bible. 
Um, not a whole lot of literate people. So a lot of them just heard it. Um, and then Erasmus comes along, uh, someone who was one of the greatest humanists uh, to live was obviously everyone was a part of the Catholic Church during that time, so a priest. Um, but he was very influential. And um, to do a Greek New Testament is not something that you just did with no repercussions. You know, the Roman Catholic Church is not very nice to people who uh, were going to translate out of the Latin. But Erasmus had such clout that he could pull this off and not be executed. Uh, so he was able to do this. And who picks up that Bible? Well, Martin Luther himself picks up that Bible and starts reading through the Greek on one side, the Latin on the other side, and saying, oh, some things don't jive here. And then also um, there's some things that need to be dealt with in the church. So he does his 95 Theses um, and uh, makes his famous speech. And of course, people uh, down the road from him, William Tyndale, they got the Tyndale Bible there. Tyndale put the Bible in English. Uh, for the first time. So that was there. Uh, of course, you got the 1611 King James, the King James version of the Bible, that uh, the original version of that, that mostly predominantly was used um, throughout Western culture, uh, throughout the Western world. Uh, most of the churches in the West did version at one point. But believe it or not, the King James version is only based on a very few manuscripts, maybe four or five, and the rest of it is basically from the Latin. Uh, in fact, when um, when that was done, they didn't really have much on books like Revelation at all, and so they uh, a lot of it was fun. And then and then the King James Version folks that the forty some people that were involved in that they uh, basically admitted that you know there was going to be some issues and there was going to be uh, most likely manuscripts that would be found in the future and there would be, need to be changes. Um, you know the Bible is uh, Christianity does teach that the Bible is inerrant, but uh, the people who uh, translated it and and as it moved down through the years or not so there are issues in in the bible from one version to the next there are things that we find as we find older manuscripts and compare them to things like the king james version or whatever and we find up oh, you know someone translated this greek word with a missing letter on the end and it turned into this word and we can see all that how that works um but in the end there is no ancient document anywhere near as well attested as the Bible. The Bible has over 6,000 manuscripts. There's no writing of antiquity that comes anywhere close to it. Um, we know exactly what was intended to write in, in the Bible because we have so many manuscripts that we can go back and check and make sure that we have what was, what was written. Now, we don't have the original autographs. Most of the time of Christ, uh, you know, things were uh, you know, a rabbi would walk around, people would write down what he said. Um, it's not the case that necessarily that um, the people who have their names on the book, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, um, actually wrote the stuff down. But, you know, they um, were the ones who inspired who spoke it. And, uh, you know, papyrus just doesn't last that long. Uh, and so when you look at things like um, when you think of people like Socrates, uh, how do we know what Socrates said? We don't have anything that Socrates, Socrates didn't write anything. Um, we don't have anything written down of what Socrates said for hundreds of years after Socrates lived. And so sometimes we hold the Bible up to a standard that we don't hold anything else up to. That's fine to a certain extent because it does claim to be the word of God. And so, uh, so you would expect that to be held up to a high standard. But as far as documents go in antiquity, nothing compares to scripture. And so um, it was an interesting conference. That's just a brief synopsis of what the conference is about, a little bit about the Bible. If anyone's interested in, uh, in more details on that, I'm sure we can do a podcast. I think that's pretty exciting. I have a few uh, short questions about it just for listeners. How, how long was the conference? 
Um, the conference was about two and a half days. Uh, we got down to DC on uh, Thursday morning and it ran for the majority of the day on Thursday, all day Friday, and then uh, museum on Saturday. And then also, um, for listeners who don't know, I've never seen this, what does a museum of the Bible look like? Is it a big place, a small place? Is it? Uh, are there many? If you have uh, samples of Bibles or papyrus and things like that, I, I assume it's behind glass and you're not to touch it or how does what does that even look like if you're a stranger walking in um it's actually a pretty large place they've got several levels um i believe if i recall correctly there was at least six levels i believe to the place there's a restaurant at the top of the place uh where you could have lunch nice little outdoor area to eat in um that was on the top floor they had a pretty large theater on the fifth floor um and that's where uh, one of the speakers gave his presentation and then on the uh, on the first four floors, they had a big, you know, a fairly good sized gift shop on the first floor. And then all the exhibits were on um, the second, third, and fourth floor, I believe. And most of the documents were behind glass, um, but it's very well, very well done. I mean, it was very. They had different videos going on uh, with different people in the video on the wall, give uh, like a lecture or a presentation on uh, that particular part of the museum. Um, they had uh, you know, lots of documents behind glass, touch them. Um, and then they had different levels were kind of dedicated to different time periods. So the first level was very ancient, uh, not even really specifically related to the Bible, but different archeological finds, civilization, um, and different evolving around that. And then it got to the earliest documents of scripture and then kind of worked its way up to King James 1611, the Tyndale Bible, the Luther Bible, all that type of stuff on the top, one of the, the higher level. Uh, we're at the bottom of your P50 manuscripts, fragment. But it's it's a fairly impressive place. Um, it um, kind of a, a large, you know, a large building with lots of levels to it, and they definitely spent some money on it, took some time. That sounds pretty amazing. Did you, um, as you went through this, I am not a student of ancient histories, but if I think about some of the more ancient preserved documents of any kind, uh, you. You know, you'll hear things about the Dead Sea Scrolls or the tales of Gilgamesh, the Old Testament, and other very ancient um, documents or or bits of parchment that have been preserved. Um, but one of the one of the more modern figures that that seems like an astounding, um, you know, Christian thinker that had a huge impact was Martin Luther. And did they did they show? Uh, a Martin Luther Bible, or did they show an example of it, or was it maybe his personal Bible, or things like that? What did they What did they do with Martin Luther? Yeah, they had several Bibles. From uh, if I recall correctly, they had a um, obviously uh, one of the versions of his translation um, to the German language, um, and which he did as he was um, basically sequestered by the prince in the uh, at Wittenberg. Uh, he um, translated version of the Bible into German. Uh, so they had that. And they also, I believe they did have a personal Bible of Luther. Um, I believe they even had a, uh, a signature of Luther. Um, so they had several different Martin Luther. That's pretty neat. Would you tell our listeners if there was a favorite exhibit Bible or document for you? Um, I like the older stuff. Um, and so I like the, the older manuscripts. Uh, you know, the fact that we have... The fact that we even have a piece of fragment of the Gospel of John that goes back as far as 100 AD, around that time frame, I find very interesting. Um, I also 
I like the story of Erasmus and Luther, so so I, I enjoyed that part of it. Um, I also enjoyed seeing, you know, replicas of um, Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. I mean, I, I'm probably never going to see those in person. The guy who gave the tour actually saw those, um, what they call codexes, which is just a fancy term for a book with pages. Um, I mean, some interesting, one interesting fact is that all of the Bibles up until the 1500s did not have chapters. Everybody thinks that the King James Version of the Bible <laughs> is, is what every, everybody used all the way down through history, because that's really all we know as Americans. Um, is things as a Bible that has chapters and verse, John chapter one, verse one, and we go. But you know, in the Greek, this is all just straight Greek letters, no spaces, capital letters all throughout. And so um, it's interesting to see how the Bible went, you know, went through its different maturation process um, and how it went through the hands of the people that preserved it. Um, so I enjoyed the full experience, but I'd say probably the older documents and then uh, understanding the. Um, the stories behind the documents, I think, are interesting. What William Tyndale went through in order just to give us an English Bible. I mean, very few people understand, you know, Martin Luther, people are more familiar with. But Tyndale, um, the guy basically had to hide, uh, had to have people hide him in order for him to get his English version of the Bible out. And eventually he was, eventually he was martyred. You know, eventually someone sold him out and uh, he paid the price for it. Yeah, that's... Uh... That's probably not the first and only Christian martyr in the history of the human species, uh, but one of the more recent compared to ancient times. Um, one of the one of the things that I've appreciated about the Catholic Church historically and pre-modern history isn't my wasn't my field, but during after the after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West and throughout the the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages of Europe, so somewhere in and around 500 to 1500 AD in general, uh, we have this this uh, preservation of records and writings, especially religious writings and biblical writings, but not only that, that are performed by these scribes. In other words, listeners will recall that there wasn't a printing press. There weren't typeset mass uh, prints of any of this stuff. So for a thousand years... Or 1500 years, you get, you know, scholars, priests, representatives of the church, and and a very tiny group of people who were literate in any kind of way, sitting there with their pens inscribing copies of ancient documents. And if they wouldn't have done that, we wouldn't have presumably any copies of a lot of these ancient documents, and a lot of a lot of the knowledge of from ancient times would have been lost. And I'm sure a lot of it was lost. But if anything wasn't lost, it's because you have these scribes copying documents that could then ultimately be preserved. And of course, this stuff was done in, in languages like Latin and Greek. Uh, but you get somebody like Tyndale, or you get somebody like Luther, or you get somebody like Erasmus, who are finally presenting these ancient documents and Bible in the language that a lay person could understand, right? So if we're in church in 800 AD, the mass and everything else is going to be in Latin. None of us, none of us parishioners know how to write. And we have no idea how to read Latin. Even if we did know how to write, it wouldn't be that. And so we would have had mass and services spoken to us in a language of which we have no idea what it meant whatsoever. And so somebody like Luther is remarkable to me because now if you're German, for the first time, you can hear a 
sermon or hear a passage from the Bible or eventually learn how to read a passage of the Bible in your own language. And so this notion of the preservation of documents is very interesting to me once you get out of an old Latin um, dead language that nobody knows how to really pronounce and only a tiny percent of Europeans would possibly know how to write or read it. And now you get a Bible in your hometown spoken by a minister who you can understand the words of it. And then ultimately, of course, you can take this home and read it for yourself and discuss it in your in your household. What a, revo- a spectacular revolution is that from parchments of paper or writings in stone or any kind of papyrus and that kind of stuff. Eventually, after TypeScript and uh, the printing press and the content in your own language, now everybody can access this Christian Bible tradition in some way. And it doesn't have to be such a mystery. You can go home and, and look up John 1.1 1, 1 if you want to read it. You don't have to remember what some guy told you in Latin two years ago that you didn't know what it meant anyways. But now you can sit there and study for yourself. I think the world must have changed in a spectacular way because this happened. Um, and I think I th- think this leads me to the my last question about the conference and the Museum of the Bible, which is for people who don't know and are not um, textual scholars, a lot of Christians are not going to be textual textual scholars. And then the four agnostics in America, which I guess I'm one of them, will have no idea about these different uh, textual uh, interpretations. What is there any example in the history of the Bible or the history of Christian interpretation that where there was a controversy about a word, what does that even look like for listeners who don't know if if one source said, you know, it meant something and another one's like, well, no, that's clearly wrong and, and so forth. How does what is, what's an example of what that even looks like? Um, well, we have lots of examples. Well, one of the interesting things um, that we find when we look at manuscripts is that in the King James Version of the Bible, you might be aware of a story. Religious leaders of the day, they find a woman who is guilty of committing adultery. And they bring her to Jesus and they say, what should we do with this woman who's been guilty of adultery? It says in the law of Moses, we should stone her. <laughs> it's kind of a trap question because it's during the time where um, they're trying to get Jesus on technicalities so that they can kill him, basically. And so they bring this interesting dilemma to Christ. And, um, they figure they have him in a catch-22 because if he says to kill him, then you know what kind of what kind of person does that, right? Uh, but then if he goes against the Mosaic law, then he's going against the Old Testament. Um, and so they think they've got him in a in a bind. And then that's when the Bible says he gets down and he writes something in the sand. The Bible doesn't tell us what he writes. All kinds of conjecture about what he may write, what he what he writes. Not told what he writes. But that's when the popular saying um, comes about: um, "He who has no sin casts the first stone." Right. So that's the story that that famous phrase comes from. In some of the early manuscripts, that story's not even there. Um, you don't, you just don't find it. And so how did it get in there? So that's when uh, textual criticism and those type of things come up about, you know, when we have something in the Bible and you can't find it in a manuscript, um, uh, there's different endings in Mark uh, that we see. Um, there's different word usages, and that has to do with, like you were saying, people are writing this stuff down, the Greek language. You can have a word that's very similar to another word, just has a little swirly line on the end of it or something, and, you know, a scribe is sitting there, and he's starting to fall asleep or whatever, and he doesn't make that line, and all of a sudden that becomes a completely different word as it goes through, 
Um, uh, just the other day, I was teaching on uh, um, a scripture in Revelation chapter three, where it has the word um, us instead of the word them. And that becomes an issue about who's even being addressed in that passage. Is it us or is it them? Um, and that is just what, what they call a textual variant. Um, it really doesn't mean anything huge in the big picture of it, um, but it does sometimes uh, have an issue as to the meaning of things. But the point being that we can go back and we can see uh, what the proper usage is. Uh, a lot of times you'll see in, um, in a Bible how things will be footnoted, like in that one particular case in Revelation 3. Um, it does say at the bottom in the text of, of the Bible, you know, not in the text of the Bible itself, but at the bottom um, where there's notes. If you have a study Bible, something like that, it says um, that the word is, in the original manuscripts, the word is them and not us. And so they don't go in and actually change the Bible. In a lot of cases, they'll footnote it, especially if you have a study Bible, so you can see the differences. Um, but we know what all, what most of those differences are. Uh, people that come out and say that the Bible is unreliable because it has different, it has errors in it or whatever, it, it's really not the case. Um, uh, we, we don't really believe that the Bible has errors or contains errors, um, nor does it contain contradictions. Now, there are some more liberal schools of thought within uh, Christianity that, that do hold to the fact that the Bible is not inerrant and that the Bible does have contradictions. Um, there's a big movement going on today called deconstruction. Uh, we could do a whole podcast on deconstruction, but the idea is that you have people deconstructing history, secular history, uh, and you also have people that are deconstructing the Bible, evangelicalism. They're deconstructing from uh, religion itself um, into different areas of spirituality and, and sometimes different ideas of what the Bible is. In other words, the Bible is a, an interesting book, but it's not actually the word of God was in there. And they have their own arguments for that. Um, but the fact that there are transcribal errors, the fact that there are translation issues, um, does not mean that the Bible is full of errors and contradictions. Um, and in, in reality, we know what most of those changes are and what, and what most of those issues are. Um, and 95% of them really have no drastic impact on them. Yeah, this is one of the, uh, for those who, who have a look at Christianity a little bit from the outside, non-believers of whatever kind, uh, the idea that interpretations or scripture will change or could be interpreted as meaning something different depending on who or when that is, <clears throat> is a big deal. Um, we, I know Christians are very all about the Bible as a, as a infallible holy writ and set of stories and examples for folks to live by. And so if I'm sure uh, there has been controversy with whether within the Christian community or from outside the Christian community, where if you didn't get the meaning of the word, or if it's if there's controversy surrounding the interpretation of that word, then you could have a problem. And so I, I have had experience with Christians, by which I mean that I've seen uh, many different kinds of churches. And I've attended services in my life, uh, or experienced their their these uh, services. And I can tell you from a non-Christian perspective, if you go into a Protestant type of church, uh, Baptist, where my family, it's pretty stripped down the the look of the place. So you're getting things like a cross, two two sticks, 
or you're getting something like a, a podium that's, you know, very basic, or you're even getting a general service that seems pretty plain. And was surprising to me to go to a Catholic service, and it looks very different. Like, it's not plain at all, at least if you're used to the, the some of the Protestant types, and they have saints and glass and gold stuff and sepulchers and cups and bags of smoke and all this other stuff. It's very artistic looking, but very different looking. And probably some of that comes from the belief in how ministry is supposed to be done. Uh, and then if you also, if you ever, if anyone ever sees a, like a Greek Orthodox type of service, for me, it looks like it's a Catholic thing times 10. It's gone off the rails and there's rugs and gold stuff everywhere and th things on the ceiling. And it's overwhelming in terms of the aesthetic presentation. And that's just the appearance. But we know that there have been disputes within the Christian community at points during its long history. And maybe why shouldn't there be? Because it's been thousands of years. But, you know, uh, even this notion of something like a transubstantiation, you get a, a Last Supper. And is it, a is it symbolic of the Last Supper and you partake of it? Or is it really some priest blessing it and it turns into a more Catholic thing where it's the physical body and blood of the Christ that's been transmuted. And it could be a little bit, you know, it's a little bit confusing when you look at the whole sum total of Christianity to always know which, you know, if the word is God and the Bible is holy, sometimes I ask myself, is it the word of God that's holy or is it the words of God? Because these words could be meant different things to different people sometimes. Or this one with the line in the sand or the, the, the writing of the message in the sand, to me, as a, a fiction writer, that there's a whole universe of what's to be had. If there's no preservation of that, there's no uh, video, picture, photo clip of the thing that was written in the sand, maybe he wrote in the sand, you know, give agnosticism another try. It'd be worth it to you, but we'll never know. So now a guy like me could fill in the gap and say, maybe, maybe that was the message that we didn't we didn't get. Now, I'm not saying that's true, but I'm saying it's it's sometimes thorny for people with maybe within and without the church to get all these meanings. So I could see why there would be a conference about textual interpretations and an amazing thing of, hey, this is, you know, this is all the Bibles we've got. Have a look at, you know, a hundred of these or however many. And so you can see for yourself what what, it, what did Luther's Bible look like? Or what did a codex look like? Or what does a New American Standard look like? That kind of thing, King James. So I have never seen a, a museum of the Bible, but if I was ever in Washington, D.C. or near one, I would certainly have a look. It sounds like a pretty uh, a pretty amazing thing to step into and, and just have a look around. So so uh, I would encourage, and I'll follow up too, and, and read up about some of the history of the documents and some of the history of the interpretations. And maybe readers will will uh, write into us and tell us what they think was the text of the scrolling of things in the sand. Um, kind of a fantastic experience. So I'm glad I'm glad you're able to do that. Do you have any any final thoughts about this conference or or biblical uh, museum? In case in case you have any, here's your uh, here's your uh, chance. Uh, well, there, there's lots of interesting things to see, and I would recommend anyone that has any interest in in the Bible to take a look at the museum. It's very well done. Um, that being said, um, the main point that I would 
probably try and drive home in this era of textual criticism is that there's a specific way, and I think maybe some of this will translate into the topic for, um, there's a specific way that God has decided to communicate and to preserve what he has communicated. Um, when you take a look at the history of the Bible, it's very easy to look and see on the surface that, you know, there's all kinds of different interpretations, all kinds of different translations. There's all kinds of people who are flawed human beings that had their hands in on it. Uh, there's seemingly contradictive statements on the surface, um, different parts of, you know, that are included in some Bibles that aren't in others. Um, and, you know, that leads someone to think, well, maybe the Bible isn't the word of God. Maybe that Maybe this isn't something that we can put our faith in, put our trust in. But actually, when you understand the way that this has been done, it's it's actually um, pretty, not only interesting, but proves the validity of the Bible, in my view. When you think of all of the things down through history that the Bible has gone through, all the attempts to wipe it out, all the attempts um, of the Romans and other um, enemies that have attempted to wipe the scriptures out, and then how it has lasted down through the years and how God has intervened to ensure that his word would be communicated through men. Uh, it's, it's pretty impressive when you understand the history of um, the idea that there's that we know what all the issues are. The idea that not one person would, would ever have been able to just come up with falsity. Because if one person ever wrote that Jesus wasn't God, or if one person would ever try and shoot something into scripture, such as the woman caught in adultery, and you know, we would be able to go back and look at a hundred other manuscripts and compare them all and see, well, actually, that was not in the Bible, or that was not in the original, um, or it couldn't have been in the original text, because we don't see it in this early codex, we don't have it in the manuscript. And that was spread out all over um, the, the known world at the time. And so you couldn't have just anybody decide they were going to put anything in there when you have cases like, that's not the case in the Book of Mormon, other religious texts. So when you have the fact that you have all of these, all of this manuscript data, and we're data people, so we like, we like the idea. When you have all these different various data points spread all throughout the known world, and then you bring them all together, and they are in the 90, the high 90 percentile of agreement, then you understand how um, this has been preserved down through the time and how even though you had different writers in different parts of uh, geographically located um, and they were being transcribed in different areas, um, it all comes together and you can see where the issues are. And you can also see if someone did make an error, you can see if there was something that was omitted or inserted. And uh, this can all be put under the lens of textual criticism and it doesn't fail the test in any case. And so, that is how God decided to preserve his word uh, through human beings. And a lot of people want to attack that. But when you think about if you had, and uh, Jay Scott and I have talked about, if you had a creator and you want, to, you want to pontificate on the idea that a creator exists or that a God exists, and this God wanted to communicate with people, how would he do it? Um, you have a spirit being who wants to communicate with people. How would he do it? Well, he's communicated audibly in the Old Testament, but then he just, he decided that in addition to the audible, he was going to have human beings. Um, he was going to speak through these human beings. He was going to have them write it down. And then he was going to use human beings to preserve the word all throughout his, all the way up until our current time period and will continue to be preserved all the way until ultimate returns. And so um, 
when you understand the preservation of it and you understand um, how that's been done and how it's been done, unlike any other book in antiquity, uh, then the issues that you see in scripture through textual criticism don't become something that uh, argues against the validity of biblical inerrancy, but actually. Yeah, this uh, history of Christianity and its preservation of, of texts is a pretty astounding example in the history of humans anywhere. Um, you know, one of my favorite very old ancient stories is Homer, the Odyssey. And I thought it was very interesting, and I've read it several times, and including in different translations, some poetic and others in verse, some modern and others less so. And I've always enjoyed the story about Odysseus, who's at the Trojan War, the Greeks and the Trojans, and there's a Trojan horse and where you get in there. And finally, after 10 years, you and your side are victorious and you, you want to go home. And that's kind of just the beginning of the Odyssey. Uh, there's this whole 10 year long journey of adventures and difficulties to be overcome and so forth until you finally get home and uh, get your spot back. And the thing I remember about Homer is these are oral histories. So by the time it's not even clear who Homer is, but we'll just call it a, a unit of measurement for telling a story. But you have this ancient tradition before uh, things like writing or common preservation of words and works. And these storytellers will sit and practice telling the story, revising the story, perhaps accentuating the story, adjusting it, and repeating it orally. And so you have the old guy whose job this was to preserve the story, and he's telling you, and then you practice it your whole life. Until one day you're the old guy and you tell the next uh, generation the story and, and so on and so forth. This oral tradition, which is very amazing because stories get preserved in a way, but I wouldn't expect the same story to be identical a hundred or a thousand years later. And so it seems to me that we, we ought to have a fair expectation that any preserved records of man would be perfect after thousands of years. Uh, LA is telling us that the points in common of these different um, interpretations or controversies or dis debates in the evolution of the understanding of the texts is fairly minor. In other words, we heard from LA upper 90% is has all, all to do with things that are in common. And so just because a sentence here or a word that somebody forgot to put the S on, a thing like uh, us and them seems like a possible big deal. But I would leave it to inter interpreters of scripture to help us figure out why it's not as big of a deal as you might think. I know it would cross my mind if somebody said we were the bad guys or they, them other guys were. And then I personally would rather have it be the other guys. So it couldn't have been us. It must have been them. I could see two sides having controversy over something like that. But mostly we're hearing from L.A. that this type of thing can be worked out and has been. Uh, and it reminds me, I don't know if anyone talks about it, but as you hear L.A. talk about the the recording and preservation of data, there's a correlation going on, is what he what he means, where you have multiple different sources, they multiple different preservers of the record, they may splinter apart for a thousand years, but when they come back together, 98.72% of the thing is in common, something like that. And it reminds me of the ancient, it made me think of an ancient version of today's blockchain, where something was recorded and you can't just make up new things because it's already been hard-coded. That process can be verified, validated. There are multiple different sources. And once you have preserved a document like that, maybe it's not 100.00% perfect, but in kind of an ancient terminology, 
terminology and sensibility, it is pretty damn good. Uh, kind of like we would expect a blockchain. Well, if I have a thousand dollars, it's not right for me to then come back to next year and say, oh, well, it was actually a million because that's not how blockchain works. We all agreed it was a hundred and there's no proceeding further than that unless that point is maintained in agreement. So I think that's pretty amazing in human history to have a set of documents that are agreed upon so well. But I wouldn't call it perfect, but it's it's pretty strong stuff. Um, and it, it, it does lead into a segue into the main topic of this podcast, which I'm calling the space, the space train of love. And what does that mean? Well, the space train of love is just an expression. I borrowed it because I imagined myself having a deep voice and being on the radio in 1975 and getting listeners to tune in to what we're talking about, what we're playing, what music we're playing that night, and things like that. But it's really just an expression that means what exists outside of the boundaries of time and space. And it's that simple. What is it that's on what is it that's bigger than the nature of the universe as we know it? And here's where I can bridge a gap a little bit when I speak with a Christian, a Christian thinker, who will tell me this thing you're talking about that is beyond the rules and nature of time and space, what you're talking about, J. Scott, is God. That's what that is. You, you may struggle long and hard for that, but the thing that exists outside the known rules of the universe and the laws therein and the history and anything else, the thing which stands apart from all that that you could experience in your human life or any other creature, is God. And for an agnostic, a, what we call a true agnostic, a person that's exploring... I've been struggling for so many years to try and grapple with and explain or encounter, even if in the slightest ways, uh, this idea of that which stands apart from time and space. I'm okay if somebody calls that God because I'm down with a short symbolic word that summarizes this concept. Mm, for me, in my work and in my writings and in my explorations, I sometimes call it the fifth dimension. So we live in a three-dimensional world, and Einstein and others have called time the fourth dimension. So what I mean is anything that stands apart from the three dimensions that we encounter plus time, whatever that is, that's four of them. So that's five or more. Whatever stands apart from that construction of rules is a fifth dimension or many, uh, or it's um, that which exists beyond time and space in our universe, uh, or just colloquially, the space train of love. Kelly has heard me talk about the space train of love from time to time, or at least the concept of it, uh, over the years of our friendship. And finally, we get to an episode of, of our own podcast where where we draw a line and say, well, what the heck is this thing that you're talking about? Um, and also, what is it that you're talking about when looked at through the lens of Christian uh, faith? And so... What do you say about this L.A.? My understanding that the bridge in our conversation is what you mean by God is also a thing outside of time and space. And what I've talked about with the space train of love or the fifth dimension is also meaning something that stands or operates outside of time and space. Can we uh, can we get a common, you know, join on this in the data world so that at least our tables could can talk to each other. I talked to someone recently who said that there was no difference between, actually, I should phrase it this way. Um, I made a distinction between atheism and agnosticism. And there's a person on TikTok. The person said, um, 
Agnostic isn't an alternative to atheist. It is an additional description. One is an atheist or agnostic. They're atheist and... Now, this was confusing to me. Our friend Jay Scott here does not identify as an atheist. He identifies as an agnostic. And I've always understood the difference between agnostic and atheist to mean that agnostic comes from the idea of knowing. Um, an agnostic claims to not either not know or not have the ability to know um, what may lay outside of time and space, but doesn't reject the idea that there is such thing outside of the space. Where the atheist rejects a belief or an existence of a god or gods um, outright. So uh, many of them um, comment on my Twitter feed or uh, come back on comments on TikTok or whatever the case may be that um, a belief in God is no different than a belief in fairy tales. It's no different than believing in Santa Claus. Uh, none of it's true. Nothing exists outside of space and time. It's all the natural world. It's all there is. To me, that's atheism. Now, this particular person doesn't believe that. They believe that you are both atheist and agnostic and the same. It's, it's not necessarily one and the same, but one is a derivative of the other. Um, we'll let Jay Scott talk about that if he wishes. But the reason I the reason I bring it up is because what Jay Scott has pointed out to me seems to be the difference between someone who is a true agnostic, in which Jay Scott calls himself true agnostic. Um, I see that as a differentiation between the agnostics that are running around nowadays that that see no difference between atheism and agnostics, where they think um, that God and beliefs are rejected and that there really is nothing outside of space and time, where this is not the what I get from Jay Scott. Jay Scott um, says that the true agnostic is searching, um, that maybe something hasn't necessarily been proven to them or they don't have the knowledge of all things, which I think everyone would agree that we don't have the knowledge of all things. Uh, but this leads to a lack of a lack of belief in a deity because um, we haven't got there yet. We're, we're on the journey. J. Scott's always talking about that. So the true agnostic is on the journey. The atheism has already reached the end of this journey. There is no journey to go on. We might have a journey or a path to go on as far as the understanding of the natural world and what's around it. But um, I'm really not concerned much with anything outside of that because there, nothing exists outside of that. Um, and once again, um, when, when Jay Scott has his turn, he can pontificate and unwrap that for us better than I can. However, the um, idea of things possibly existing outside of space and time is what I understand Jay Scott's getting to on the space train of love. And uh, that's why it's interesting for, for us to have the conversation because obviously in the Christian worldview, there is a being that exists outside of space and time. And I find it hard to believe that people could think that there is nothing existing or that the universe was eternal. I think maybe science has, does not agree with that, or maybe science has changed its mind. I don't know exactly where science is on that nowadays. The last time that I read any scientific, that at least our universe had the beginning, but maybe there's a multiverse, maybe it's, maybe it's continuous, maybe the universe is eternal. But when a Christian hears these things, as J. Scott pointed out, um, if you're going to uh, understand the idea of an eternal universe, then why, why would you have such, an, such a problem with an eternal being? Um, and if you can get to an eternal being, then an eternal being must be outside of space and time. Um, and in order to have any kind of access to this, uh, it would have to be revealed to it because how are we to know what is outside of space? We are creatures of space and time. It's all that we know. Um, regardless of the being that we want to pontificate created us, we exist in space and time. It's the only perspective that we have. So if we're to have a different perspective of this, then it would either have to be revealed to us, as Christianity shows, 
or you would have to be able to reach it one day as um, this space train of love uh, is understood by Scott. And so it, it, there are some similarities there, but it's, it's unclear to me um, where, the, where the justice is in, in that idea. What I mean by that is if we're to get there on the, on, on, on the space train one, and someone's able to get to this final destination and knock on the door, then what happens to all the people behind them that are were not able to? Um, is there some way provided so that the other people who have contributed to uh, this door knocking event uh, get to play some kind of role on the train? Because it seems to me that that would be a nice added feature. Um, Christianity obviously has this. Um, there will be people that are here at the end of time when the deity returns uh, for his people. And um, there'll, there'll be lots of people who believe in the deity that had passed on. Um, and so do these people not get to participate in, in this event of meeting the deity? Well, no. Uh, those people who have passed on, um, the Bible says to be um, separate from the body, to be with the Lord uh, by means of your soul, uh, but at, but at, at one point, the soul will have a recreated body, and uh, this is for all those who have passed on. And so they get to be, um, if they believed, they get to be part of the end time event and through into eternity, which is outside of space and time, which is what eternity is. And so um, I'm wondering if uh, there is such um, an idea in, in, in this idea of, of, Scott, of J. Scott's, or if it's just basically the current knowledge that you have that you're contributing to this and that's all that you get, or is there some other way that we can define? Yeah, the space train of love. The idea behind it in terms of the nature of existence has to do with dimensions, our current understanding of how we operate in space and time. And so the unfolding of it, and this isn't a J. Scott uh, notion, the records of Religious folks and records of scientific folks also have been long preserved. And the idea there from a physics-mathematics standpoint is that if you exist in a single dimension, you're a point. A point exists in a single dimension. And it would be impossible as a point to understand the concept of a line. If you are a point, then it will be in fact impossible for you to ever have knowledge or operation within something beyond that dimension. And so you'll never realize that there are points near you. And if they go all in a certain direction, then they're a line. That's a second dimension. By an extension of that, if you're a line and you exist in two dimensions, you have length, a series of points adjoining each other as a length. You'll never know of things like height, width, and volume because you're a line. And a line cannot possibly know that which is in the dimension beyond it. And now you have three-dimensional space. And you could throw in this notion of time and how it can be measured uh, or how it can't be measured. Or if I've heard, uh, you know, there are bubbles of time and reversals of time and science fiction all about time. And if you include that as a fourth dimension, then by that standard, it would be impossible for an entity within these dimensions to understand in any meaningful way that which lies beyond it. Beyond it. So we're talking about here a Christian God. We're talking about an agnostic idea of an entity which is separate from time and space. We're talking about a fifth dimension, of a, a, a thing which is beyond our ability to experience. And here's where I feel like some com common ground could be made with Christian. 
because when you talk about things that could exist beyond human experience and beyond all knowing, and they what they hear is, you know, what they're hearing is you're just talking about God. And so I feel like there's a, a common ground for a beginning of a conversation. Yeah, I am talking about something like that, an entity that stands apart from the nature and rules of this universe. I'll briefly say that for me, an atheist is somebody who who says that they can prove that God doesn't exist. And a believer is somebody who says that they can prove that God does exist. And so for LA, we've heard even tonight that the Bible and the existence of God is proven in that message and through that manner. And sometimes when I talk to Christians, I'll bring up this notion, this little side hustle called faith, where the definition of faith is believing and knowing something is true without being able to prove it. And so that's what faith means. In other words, you don't just uh, accept your your experience or your holy book or, or the unfolding of the laws as a final proof. You also have to have faith and believe in it. You have to believe in God. I think that's that's part of the deal if you're a Christian. You can't just accept proofs on papers and theorems and, and holy writs, but you also have to believe in Jesus and, and you have to believe in God. And you have to believe that you're going to be saved and ask for forgiveness and things like that. It's personal. It's a little bit personal, these Christians and their relationship with God, or at least many of them I've seen seem to take it personally. And so when I bring in that little side branch, that little side hustle, I'll call it, that little bit of faith means what do you, how do you experience things that cannot be proven? And so the middle ground of what I mean by an agnostic, not the true agnostic, just a garden variety agnostic, if somebody looks at these two sides and saying, hey, on the one side, I'm hearing from religious folks that they can prove that there is a God, and many have, have uh, claimed this throughout history, and I look at the atheists of the world, and they can claim that they, they can prove that there is no God. And the one in the middle is, says, I don't know how either one of you can prove anything. It's a big universe. And that's kind of the starting point of the agnostic, where you don't know the answer, and the proofs of the various parties will not do and you have to look. Well, this this is the journey part. And Jay Scott on the Up Your Dialogue podcast has talked many times about the notion that a true agnostic is on a journey. And the idea there is you can't be <clears throat> on a journey and at a destination at the same time. They're not the same thing. A journey heads you toward a destination, whether you know what that is or not, but it's a, a, it's a there's a experience in motion going on when you're on a journey. And there is an experience in motion that is not going on when you have arrived at your destination. And so the point of the journey is to see what's out there. And the limitation, I, I feel as though my Christian friends, I'll call them Christian brothers and sisters, but my Christian brothers are the inheritors of a long, rich, and deep, but also a human tradition of creatures who have lived on this planet at this point in time for the last thousands of years. And the unfolding of the universe, for me, looks like it is a process that is much longer and much broader than any single, what uh, Carl Sagan called, what any single pale blue dot looks like. And so when I look out at the universe, and I do, I see a lot of things that are not the pale blue dot. And because it's so vast and so rich, a cosmic ocean, really, I think, our Christian brothers are here for a reason to share with us the wisdom of what they have discovered, what they have uh, experienced, and what they have recorded. 
And it's obviously a big deal because if it were not for these such people, we wouldn't have a lot or most of what we ended up getting in terms of our knowledge. It would have been lost during the Middle Ages. It would have not occurred during ancient times. It would have never been written down. There would be no Martin Luther trying to get the thing into the language of his of his neighbors so that people could talk about it. All that stuff wouldn't happen if it weren't for this very long and deep Christian tradition. But for the agnostic of my type, a Christian is only one life form in the cosmos. And therefore, a Christian man, a man of any kind, a human of any kind, has limitations in terms of what they can know, what they have discovered, and what they've seen in the cosmos. So here we get into ideas about the many other species of life that are on this planet that we know of, some more intelligent than others, and the notion that this isn't the only planet in the cosmos capable of supporting life forms. And the question there being is, what is the experience or nature of all these many different life forms? And so it isn't for me that the experience of the Christians and their holy book, both of which are essential and incredibly important to the understanding of the cosmos, if you're on this planet like me, this is the uh, an enormous gift, an enormous really neat thing. And so unlike atheists, I object to anyone pointing the finger at a Christian and saying, you're no good, get out, your time has passed, you're irrelevant, or we want to persecute you even further. You could forget about that with somebody like me. I think of Christians as an ancient tribe that has given us precious information doesn't mean a complete answer and a solution, a sum total of how the universe works, but a, a precious and important gift that we otherwise wouldn't have had. It, and that we should be thankful for, no matter who you are, that you have a chance to get this information and experience that you would have never had if it weren't for this, the sum collective total of what they've done. I hear a lot of the same type of talk from Jordan Peterson when he talks about story in his lecture and the contributions of Christianity to society in that regard and how they should be discarded. Um, and there's a lot of good stuff uh, in regards to would uh, recommend. There we go. Looks like you're back. Um, so, yeah, I, I hear a lot of that, uh, a lot of similar talk from, from Peterson in regards to his stories, um, how they contributed, continue to contribute to society, um, Western society specific. Um, and here we have the difference between what I call your common day atheism slash agnosticism and what Jay Scott calls the true agnosticism. Um, it's all I really hear from the atheists and even a lot of the agnostics of our day, especially online. It's just generic attacks of Christians as people who believe in, you know, flying spaghetti monsters. There's no difference between you know, the belief in God and the belief in Santa Claus. That that obviously isn't accurate. Uh, it's just an antagonist attacks against, um, you know, Judeo-Christian principles that have really been instrumental in, in the bedrock of Western civilization. So a true agnostic that can recognize that, I think, goes a long way to be, being able to have a good conversation about a topic like this and not just have attacks and criticism, silly, silly name calling, uh, not taking an entire belief system seriously, as is not done by the majority of atheists and agnostics that I interact. So it's good to hear um, when you can talk about something that has some uh, overlap in regards to the idea of God and Christianity and the idea of a potential being in agnostic. And the analogy made to the point in the line in three-dimensional space, I, I think it's a good one overall. I mean, you think of a, a point 
as potentially the blue dot, um, the line as our our universe of existence, and then that three dimensional space as the heavens, or 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 the or, or what may exist outside of that. That the dot can't understand the line. The line can't understand what exists in three dimensional space because they have no experience, but they have no way to access. Um, and there is uh, a valid point about the idea of faith. I mean, we don't, and from my perspective, I don't claim that I can prove that God exists through mere evidential purpose. Um, I can claim that um, that the Bible is authentic. I can make the claim that the Bible is accurate, inerrant, what have you. I can make the claim that um, there was a historic Jesus. I can make the claim that people saw him and wrote about it, you know, extra biblical sources as well as the biblical sources that we use. But I can't um, prove any more than anybody else can that God exists through our five senses, that type of thing. Um, so there is a point in time where faith comes in, but I think that there's a point in time where faith comes in for all of us. Um, I think there's a point in time where um, faith is necessary for just about any belief system. And I believe that everyone, even the atheist, does have a belief. There's, there's always something that you believe in. Um, sometimes I think it's quite the cop-out for the atheist or even the modern-day agnostic to say that they're void of any need for faith or belief or anything that's that's sort of a denial of your very existence, what you know to be true. Um, you have faith in things you don't see. You don't see gravity. You don't see molecules, uh, things with the naked eye um, that are all around us. Um, so th there's always an element. The question is, how far are you going to take that? Um, and in Jay Scott's view of things, he's going to take that as far as he can go in the journey that allows him to go. And then he has to, in his words, hand the baton off to someone else who's going to take that journey farther, the ultimate demise. Um, wherefore, the Christian, um, we also acknowledge the dot and the line analogy, but we have faith that the, the ultimate supreme being, God, has revealed himself and has communicated that. And so we understand the, not, the, the limits of our own knowledge, but we've been giving supernatural knowledge um, that has been communicated to us. And we have access to that three-dimensional space through that. Um, so we're not on a journey necessarily of millions of years in order to knock on the door of the Supreme Being one or hopes that it do that. The Supreme Being has knocked on the door of the pale blue dot and says, here it is. And here's what it is that you seek. Uh, I've communicated this to you. Um, and you have to have faith in this revealing. That's to be accepted or rejected. Um, and in that regard, um, you have the difference in the journey between the agnostic and the Christian. The true agnostic and the thinking Christian um, pontificates on these things. Now, that's not necessary to do. Um, a lot of people don't do this type of thinking on the subject. But when you really get down to it, we're all beings on a pale blue dot. That's a point of common understanding. And the acknowledgement that we all seek something greater than ourselves is also in it. Um, but the idea of how we get there is where we diverge. And so... Um, our discussions are mainly around that divergence. So we understand where the common points are. We can agree on those. Uh, but then how exactly do you move from dot to line to 3D space um, from the agnostic view? And I think that's where the space train of love comes. Right. From a <clears throat> pale blue dot, I look around at the intelligent species that I can communicate with. And they're human, by and large. Uh, and the Christians have been around for a couple thousand years, preserving and 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 oftentimes transmitting what they've learned and sharing their message. It's difficult for me 
to look at the universe and accept a person in front of me who says, I know the answer. And it's difficult for me to look at another person who says all, separately, the answer is not important. So if I talk to Christians, they seem pretty sure that they know certain important answers. And if I talk to the atheists, I often hear those questions are not important. And of the two, I'm much more inclined to speak with those who tell me that it's not even worth the question. And this is one of the things I like about science and the way it should be is that it's a thing full of questions. It's not a thing full of answers. At its heart, is a thing full of questions. And so I hop on board that train that's full of questions rather than there's no point in having a train. There's no point in wondering. The void is coming for all of us, and it's irrelevant, and so are you, and so is everything else. If it was so irrelevant, then why would it be here? And so I wonder, before I talk about a couple, and some important concepts, like this baton, that L.A. has mentioned, and he mentions it because we've spoken about this before, and he knows I have things to say about the baton and how it how it's transmitted and what the role of the, the person holding the baton and receiving it, what is that? And I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to. But from a theological perspective, I wonder if the journey of a true agnostic, I wonder what that has in con common with the concept of deism, uh, or if it has anything in common, because I hear from some of the work of the founding fathers of this country, United States of America, and I hear in the work of a great many Enlightenment thinkers, this notion of a prime mover, an entity that exists outside of time and space and pushed that existence into motion and then left and said, I put all this stuff into motion and I'll get back to you when I get back to you. And that's, that's how that works. And I know many of the Founding Fathers had a belief system that incorporates a view in this way, which is, yes, there is a creator and a divine mover, but what happens after that is fair play, fair game. Uh, you know, you, you don't hear too often the sermons of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson because they weren't really sermon types of folk, uh, which doesn't mean that they weren't Christian per se, but what they were more so was a more abstract notion of a creator, a, an entity which caused the existence of time and space and is no longer involved with that process, or if said entity is ever going to be involved with that process, that entity will then make it known that it's doing so. And then that's maybe a little bit like, in a way, the end of times in the Christian world, the, you know, the creator god will come back to the earth and settle accounts and and do the process of revelations and the afterlife and things like that whereas the deist is going to be very non-specific about this process there isn't four horsemen or a lake on fire or a, some kind of personal connotation or involvement with it things will happen when the creator ever comes back if they ever do to settle accounts and would we say before i go on about the batons of uh, the passage on the space train of love. And before I get to the part where you open the door of this fifth dimension or this entity that exists beyond time and space, before before I cover those two things, which is what I want to do, what about this notion of deism, L.A., as a Christian thinker and, and believer, a man of God and faith? Um, what, do, what do we think about some of these enlightenment uh, uh, figures 
including some of the founding fathers of our own country who who were maybe would describe themselves as a deist what should we make of what should we make of that branch of of theology where there is a creator but any interpretation of what that means or after acknowledging that is human based and and by human based i mean not perfectly you know comprehensively accurate um i think that i think that deism uh brings about some basic problem uh, with the idea of a deity being one that just kind of starts the clock up and lets it go. Uh, there's several problems with it, I think. Um, although, you know, I don't have a problem with the, uh, with the deists in, in that they don't object to the idea of God. They didn't, the founding fathers didn't object to the idea of a creator or a deity. Um, obviously, they thought it was important to have a deity or to have something outside of ourselves, given the fact that they all agreed that our rights came from this, um, which we forget sometimes in our own country. And we've had discussions about rights on the podcast, for sure, on several occasions. Um, but the idea that our rights could come from a creator, something outside of ourselves, is obviously good because we don't want our rights based on us lowly pale dot creatures. Um, when we've had attempts of history to lay at the feet of human beings the responsibility for the delegation of rights that's gone very badly. Um, so the founding fathers were right to subscribe those rights to a being outside of ourselves. The problem, though, is that if it's a deist type of deity that's basically just wind the clock up and let it go, then this isn't a personal deity. Um, this isn't a deity that really cares about morality or justice or anything like that. And so how do we get our rights from a creator that really has no interest in the creation? Why bother with the, the delegation of rights at all? Why not just, you know, set the creation, hang the pale blue dot, and just let the people destroy themselves, themselves to death, whatever the case might be, um, who cares? Um, a, a deist, a deism doesn't create a, a deity that cares about anything that's happening. It's just there. I'm not even sure why um, the deist would, would say that the creator even bothered. Uh, so how we get our rights and, and what the, uh, the issue of objective morality, these different things that we talk about within Christianity, don't exist in the deist rep representation of it because um, that deity doesn't care on a personal level about what actually happens to the creation um, because he just wound it up and let it go and left it. Um, so I, I think that's probably the main issue that I have with, with deism and why I think that um, when we talk about things such as morality and human interaction with other humans, why it's important to uh, love your neighbor, why it's important to um, love God first and love your neighbor second, um, why it is that we have the purpose that we do in this life. It just seems to jive more with the idea of a personal creator in Christianity, uh, the way the New Testament describes it, rather than the let's let God off the hook part of deism that just um, sort of separates what actually happens here on earth from the purpose that the deity has in it. So I think if I had to come up with one major objection to the idea of deism, that would be it. Although I'll give credit to uh, those who, who did take that um, theological understanding at least far enough to um, understand that our rights do not come from the creature. Yeah, so let's talk about this baton a little bit. This, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about about from my historical sensibility, Christians preserving their documents. And we have the notion of a scribe in the Middle Ages 
who is a Catholic, and really the only Western church, recording an important piece of scripture and leaving a record so that the next guy will have it. Um, and a series of that until, until today where we have a museum of the Bible. And we have lots of different Bibles that have been preserved due to an incredibly hard work of many people for the last 2,000 years. When we talk about passing the baton, it's on a level not only of multiple generations, I maintain. It's not only about multiple iterations of human life form that are getting this done over time, but it's not specific to species either. And so for me, humans are a life form in the universe. And it could be life form number 7846274-B. And that doesn't mean that it isn't a life form and has no place, but it does mean there are a million or a billion other life forms, and they also ha don't have no place. They have a place. So the, another area that L.A. mentions is this idea of the soul, uh, an extra thing that is not part of your five senses or strictly related to the rules therein. It's not an experiential thing because you see it or smell it. It's a, a bonus magic mystery thing that is undescribable by human sensation or provable. This notion of a soul or a notion of a soul that will return to its creator and experience an afterlife throughout eternity. With the space train of love concept, there is an ultimate goal, which is to understand or learn or grow or experience not individually, but collectively, as the sum total of all species that exist in the universe, of which there one presumes, someone like me presumes there are a great many, to be able to have the experience of time and space so that you could even have a conversation with this entity that exists outside of time and space. And I don't have the capability to have a conversation on equal footing or in a meaningful way, in a non-Christian sense, I don't have the ability to have this conversation yet with an entity that exists outside of time and space because by definition I'm inside of time and space. So maybe these Christians have been visited by secret aliens and we can therefore prove now that there's other forms of life, intelligent forms of life in the universe because something that is not of the earth, said entity, came and told the Christian, some of the early Christians, hey, this is how it works. This is the teaching of the creation of the world. This is a teaching of the appropriate behaviors and wrong behaviors. Here is the son of the deity to sacrifice himself and give an example and a route to forgiveness so that you can get to this afterlife appropriately. And here are some warnings if you do the wrong things. And here's what can be expected if you do the right things and, and get this done. Maybe said entity outside of time and space pulled plucked out a guy like Paul or Saul, and whether he got bonked on the head or went blind or for whatever reason, this message was conveyed in an important, meaningful way. Unfortunately for me, no one, no said entity that I know of has done that. So they didn't grab me by the ear and say, hey, you turkey, this is how things work. And now you have this vision of a direct vision or experience of this outside of time and space entity. If that would happen for me, I don't even know how I would explain that, and I don't know that it would be important for me to explain that, because it's not up to me, the moving of the mysterious ways of the said entity outside of time and space. So the idea of the baton is analogous to the Christian notion of preserving important scriptures 
recording them so that they can be so that somebody later down the road could see them and learn from them and having another copy and making sure the right text is in the right place in the right language so that it could be useful to future people that are not born in 100 AD. Well, for the space train of love, this is a concept writ large. So any creature that has crossed some kind of barrier of consciousness, meaning uh, is it capable of perceiving its death before it occurs, um, or is it capable of an awareness that is not subject to only physical sensation, uh, the, the input of the stimulus of its particular senses, um, be that a soul or consciousness or whatever the thing is, but for me, this isn't a human issue, despite the fact that our Christian brothers have helped us out in preserving very important traditions as encountered by them and experienced by them on a pale blue dot. But I'm waiting too for other advanced species to help us out on the space train of love. Things like dolphins, whales, uh, certain forms of apes, and other creatures that can pass the mirror test. You know, like the magpie, when you look at humans do this too. When you look in the mirror, do you attack the thing? Does it startle you? Or at what point do you do you come to the realization, a very critical realization, that that thing in the mirror is you? Some species do this in today's world and others don't. So I'm talking about the ones that do. And I think in a process of evolution over billions of years, the history of the stars and the matter of the universe, so far as scientists claim to be able to understand the human being itself is just the tiniest um, iteration of a life form on some small place in a huge and vast universe. And so I want the dolphins to help us on the space train. If humans end up becoming so technologically powerful that they can create a general AI, an AI that becomes self-aware, that can pass a mirror test, that can foreshadow its own, you know, foresee its own death and draw conclusions based on this, these concepts, then I'm down for an AI life form, a silicon-based form of life that is also on the space train. And while this space train of love is going on, I expect that other species of life forms in the universe that have consciousness will also contribute in new and important ways to the space train journey itself. And so... I look at this handing off of a baton in a very humbling way, which means that it's my function here because I can and because it's so beautiful to aggregate the ideas throughout my life and leave a record so that a future life form, be it human or otherwise, could possibly then learn from the preservation of that record and take us a little bit farther. So I want to Make sure our listeners don't confuse the space train of love as something that's really fast, like a like a speed of light kind of thing. It's actually incredibly slow. It's a game of inches and millimeters where your whole entire life could be spent in getting you one millimeter further along the journey, and that would have been a life well served. We'll discuss after the baton concept the idea of knocking on the door when you're ready and encounter this fifth dimension, this entity that is not part of time and space. But for me, the idea that a, an entity who is the master of the superposition of all forces in the universe, including those very small and very large at all points and has the outside mastery over time and space, 
that it would be communicating something perfectly or directly to me, while not impossible, is analogous to me trying to communicate something very important with a gnat. And although I could try, and I couldn't possibly prove the future that it cannot happen, but it would be silly of me to assume that I'm just going to tell a gnat something, and then that gnat's going to gain us awareness and consciousness and a soul and have something to say back to me. A lot of time and effort must take place in the journey of a piece of light and ending up as collections of pieces of matter. And those pieces of matter that end up being part of something biological or a primordial goo and the single celled organisms of that learning how to consume their neighbor's organisms so that they become multicellular this isn't the kind of thing that happens in 2,000 years, or even, in many cases, 200,000 years. These are small units of time compared to eternity and compared to that which exists outside of time and space. So we'll get to L.A.'s point about where's the justice. Uh, and there is a, a point, whether right or wrong, but there is a perspective on the question of where's the justice. Uh, but wherever this justice is during the passing of the batons of learning, knowledge, Examples of love, good government, uh, exploration beyond the village you're in, to a continent that you're on, to a planet that comes after that, to a solar system that comes after that, and a galaxy that comes after that. Uh, this, this extended journey, we shouldn't, on the space train of love path, presume that the ultimate point of justice has anything to do with J. Scott Harden. Uh, and J. Scott Harden should not presume, at least during the journey, that it's about the benefit and justice of J. Scott Harden. We'll get to what happens when we knock on the door. But the presumption is that in finding out what lies, how a point can become aware of a line, or how a line can become aware of a three-dimensional object, who can then become aware of time, and finally this fifth dimension of that which is beyond it, we shouldn't presume that the lifespan of a human on a pale blue dot let alone a gnat or a piece of primordial goo, is going to derive the correct answer during the lifespan, the physical lifespan of that, of that object. So it's a long, long process unfolding over billions of years and looked at with respect to that perspective. The lifespan of J. Scott and, and L.A. Lundy is just a brief flicker. And there's more before that flicker occurred and there'll be more after by orders of magnitude that last for billions of years and not 80 years. I don't know if that's a question. Did I leave uh, L.A. with a question? I don't think I did, but we'll hear his, We'll have him weigh in for a minute. Well, in this podcast episode, I'm the one with the question. I suppose I should come up with um, I, I think there's some interesting things that uh, J. Scott brings up in this um, idea of the space train love. Um, I think it's important that before the podcast ends, J. Scott explains why he added the word love onto the space train. I don't think we've gotten into that yet, but we'll be interested to hear that idea. Uh, the Bible explains the human existence in the same way that J. Scott did. Um, our existence is but a breath. Uh, it's also translated as a puff. Uh, it could be thought of as a puff of smoke that goes out from J. Scott's cigarette into the air, and you see it, as I do on the video, as our listeners don't, because we don't do video yet. But at some point we may, but I can look at the screen in front of me and see Jay Scott puffing on a cigarette and that smoke goes on the screen for a minute and that's gone. And the Bible explains that the human condition is like that dust. Uh, the deity knows that we're dust. He knows our flesh. It's weak, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there is some continuity there between 
the way J. Scott describes the human existence and the way the Bible describes human existence. The interesting point, though, I think um, one of the interesting points that's being made um, is that the evolutionary process over billions of years, which Christians don't deny, I, I want to th throw this in, the, the Christian does not deny the idea of evolution. It's a false tech that's thrust upon the Orthodox Christianity it isn't true. Christians don't have a problem with science. They don't have a problem with the evolutionary process. The issue lies in the idea that J. Scott brings up in that evolution can bring about um, the human condition as we know it in regards to sentience, in regards to the consciousness, in regards to what Christianity terms as the soul. Um, although we don't say that evolution doesn't happen, we do say that um, the deity or God had a purpose for that process and that the deity created man in his um, body, soul, and spirit. The way the Bible records it is uh, God breathed in the nostrils of man, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Um, we don't see, at least here we get into what we can prove and what we can't prove through evidence. We don't see any evidence that I'm aware of that a chimpanzee or um, an amoeba or um, fish or anything like that cares anything about the love train of space train of love thing. Uh, they don't care about that. The lion roams about caring about where his next meal is going to be, and he will kill his own reproduction if, in fact, he gets hungry enough or the lionesses don't go out and produce uh, the necessary food. Um, dolphins are very smart, uh, but last I checked, they don't care about the existence of a deity or getting on this train either. Um, maybe at some point I'll be proven wrong on that. That would be it. Um, so I don't know of, I think it takes a bit of faith to think that um, we would be able to move on with a superior existence at some point that would be able to cross the dot into the line or cross the line into the three-dimensional area um, just on our own accord. Um, in the Christian worldview, that's not possible. It takes a revealing of the deity, and the deity reveals himself because he is a personal God that is concerned about the creation that he's created. So he's revealed himself, without which we would have no chance to be able to bridge that gap. Um, and I don't see evidence of the gap being bridged, mainly uh, attributable to the evolutionary process, which is really only concerned about survival um, and not really concerned about deities, uh, what may be outside of space and time and all that has no bearing on the survival of the fittest. The pushing the, um, the species forward is not a condition of understanding of the deity. It's a condition of the survival of the species. And so why I, why I think it would be um, an interesting idea to have um, in another 2 billion years to have the human being be able to either interact with or become something uh, greater than we see um, would be an interesting leap of faith to understand something like that and to hand the baton to someone who is um, over the course of billions of years, who is so much greater than ourselves um, that they can make that leap from dot to line. I'm not sure that I can get there, um, even with two billion years, because I'm not sure that the previous two billion years has resulted in what we actually see today um, without the interruption of the revelation of the deity. And so I think at some point, if we're going to get on the 
space train of love, that the deity has to bring us on board because we can't get there in and of ourselves because we haven't gotten here in and of ourselves. And like I said, that's not to disregard the evolutionary process. That from a um, micro sense is proven and evidential. We see that. But from a macro sense of moving from one species to another species, we don't even see the movement necessarily that I'm aware of uh, from fish to human. In regard to uh, the consciousness and sentience and, and the knowledge that we all aspire to of um, what exists outside of ourselves, our universe, our spectrum, our time and space continuum. No other being, at least on the pale blue dot, has any inclination other than human beings as to the possibilities of that. Um, we don't see uh, some sort of in-between being. Now, I have heard from mostly the atheists that like attack me <laughs> that, oh, it's, you know, it's so long of a process that you know, you, you don't see those things happening. The process is too long. Um, and I understand where they come up with that because they don't really have anywhere else to go. But to me, a, a, uh, the idea of my ancestors being fish gives the universe sort of a purposeless. And we have this discussion of a purpose um, and what the purpose is for all this, what the purpose would be of the space train of love for a deity that created something and then knew that it would take, let's say, 60 trillion years for uh, this primordial goo to be able to get to the place where he knocks on the door. Um, knowing that there was going to be less than 6 trillion years of uh, existence of poor, wretched creatures that would never get to knock on the door. Um, and the handing of the baton is a concept that's similar to the idea of preservation. Of, but the purpose of preservation of scripture is preserving the revelation of the deity for that next generation of people that the deity did not show himself directly as he did the original writer. And um, in the space train of love, we don't, we don't have that. So it's a matter of just continuing to pass the baton on until hopefully one day we get to the door. But there's a lot of time and space in all of that baton passing. And what is the, what is the purpose for all of those baton passers that don't get to the door? Uh, like I go back to my previous question, um, the space train of love has a lot of occupants that never get to the door. And I would hope that if this is true and Christianity is false, or if some uh, in-between idea that the deity responsible for this space train of love would have something, would have some form of justice for those who were on the train but didn't get to the door. Um, and that's where Jay Scott's going to talk about the door as we wrap up the podcast. And I hope that he talks about how love factors, because I want to hear about that. Because agape love for me is the love that the deity has for the creature, which refutes the idea of deism, which gives us the knowledge that the deity does, uh, one of the attributes of the deity is love. God is love. And so then we can experience love because we have that attribute from the deity that created us. And, and ultimately, we'll experience the full idea of love. Um, all of us who believed in the deity and was on the Christian train of love. Uh, uh, there is justice for all those of us who very humbly uh, acquiesce to this faith that we were told to have in the deity that created us to ultimately bring us all into his presence and outside of space and time for eternity. Um, because of this concept, it makes me want to have, for the benefit of J. Scott, and I know he says there's no, you know, there's no specific benefit for the J. Scott on the pale blue dot, and that's okay. 
But for me, that's not good enough. For me, um, if there is a deity, then that deity should be personal. That deity should be caring at some level, at some level over his creation and whether or not that creation ultimately gets to the door. Not just the one person who happens to be the lucky guy at the end of this trillion year, or however many, but all of those people who preserved the idea and passed the baton along. Where are those people? I want justice. For I want the deity to care about those because that's what I see in Christianity. So if Christianity is false, then I like the idea that a deity exists, but I want the deity to have, not for the purpose of J. Scott or anybody else, but for deity's own purpose, to have a stake in those who pass that baton along. Not because J. Scott is super important, but because J. Scott passed the baton in hopes that the deity existed and had faith that the deity did exist and was a part of that process that got us to the door. There ought to be some sort of justice. I like this. The main summary of what I just heard was that J. Scott is really important. I don't know the rest of it. I don't know if you listeners heard any of the rest of it, but... That's what I heard. Jay Scott is really important. And uh, I think we can move on to the next podcast, having concluded that. And I wish you all a good night. No, that's not true. L.A. has posed questions, and, and he's going to have to get some answers, uh, clearly. And that's what we do here. We explore the ideas that have been brought up collectively. And during the process, we're respectful and encouraging of the other person to be able to, to have some expression around that so we can consider. That's what, that's what a dialogue is for, and we will continue to do that. Even when it comes to something sensitive like God or in the afterlife and the soul and, and uh, even something really important like the space train of love. Um, and L.A. brings up the question a couple of times, why, whence the word love? So is love something that only a Christian believes that they have a monopoly on knowing what that means? Or is it something a, an agnostic or an atheist believes they have only, only their view as to what that means? The answer here is going to be not as sensational as maybe some listeners would believe, but why I call it the space train of love and not the space train, or the space train heading for the fifth dimension outside of time and space, which is basically what I mean. But why do I insert the word love into it? What's the love part of the space train? And the non-sensational reason why I include that is if you listeners will remember the beginning where I wish I had a deep voice and was in charge of a radio or television station back in the 1970s in America. And with this booming deep voice, I say, and this is how dumb it is, welcome everyone to tonight's broadcast of the Space Train of Love. And then some R&B music plays or other disco and other cool things. And so you just get, the, what comes out of that is just a sense of inclusion, uh, a sense that people are on board are welcome, I should say, to be on board. And I would extend that specifically to my Christian friends and brothers and sisters, that they too are, are have their own car on the, the space train of love. And, and uh, I consider them to be an important part of the journey of what goes on in the finding of the, finding of the limits of space-time. The problem for me as an individual is, one of the reasons that makes me maybe more humble than I should be, but incredibly humble, humbled by the fact that in the lifespan of a tiny little point on a dot in the middle of nowhere, that it should be directly about me. And so when I say something like love, what I mean is that we shouldn't understand a concept like that in a three-dimensional world. Uh, what means by love is something that will be answered on the other side of that door. And it isn't can't be described by an individual 
without the awareness that there's things going on more than that individual is aware of. So when the space train of love keeps going through its billions and trillions of years, the creature that ends up knocking on the door, I don't expect will be a human. Uh, and I don't think it's a man or a woman who will knock on the door. I think it'll be something more involved and enlightened than a human. And so I pose this to L.A., and this is where I think we could demonstrate that he was wrong. If he ever was going to be wrong about something, it would be in the moment where a dolphin pops out of the water and says, somehow in a language that is communicable between L.A. and the dolphin, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. If that dolphin pops out of the ocean while L.A. is taking a walk on the beach, and says that or conveys that to him, I bet he'll change his mind and say, well, maybe the, maybe I was wrong about this. And there's other species that are not human that, that, could, uh, that could have a belief in an important and correct thing about the nature of life and existence. This dolphin just popped out and told me that he found Jesus Christ and accepted him and intends to go to heaven and looking for this, looking for this uh, justice or moral outcome. And if they can have an agreement on this, then L.A. will admit that he was mistaken about the singularity of humans being able to do this. And then secondly, if we, if we encounter L.A. after this, and I will, I'll make sure we have a podcast about it if this happens. What will readers say to L.A. when he comes and tells us dolphins have popped out of the ocean and started talking to him or revealed things? What, what as humans are we going to do with L.A. if he ever does come out and give us a, a story like that? Well... I don't know, but I'll see what I can do to make sure, you know, he gets whatever help he needs or encouragement on the podcast or as a friend. I expect that I won't be able to identify a great portion of what this this uh, eternity is like or what happens on the other side of the door when the fifth dimension is knocked upon. But I would expect and hope, and this is the if there is a faith part of what I'm doing here, it's that collectively we'll get a better answer as the sum total of trillions of years of species on all planets that are living, that the sum total of that will give a better answer than J. Scott Harden can during his particular lifespan on this dot. And so I expect that the entity that knocks on the door of this fifth dimension is going to be the sum product of an entire series of lifespans of creatures, life forms, men, uh, planets, throughout the entire universe, so that by the time that thing knocks on the door, it will have the skill set required to be able to do that. And uh, I'm reminded of, an, of the interview that occurred in late, later in Albert Einstein's life. One of my favorite and amazing scientists who seemed capable of creating some magic sauce that people wouldn't have thought was there in, with his ideas and work. And a journalist asked him, do you believe in God? Just a simple, direct question. And Einstein answered on record that, and he said, I believe in the God of Spinoza. That was, and that was it. That's all he said. That was the answer. And people since then have been like, well, what in the heck is the God of Spinoza? And now we're fishing out 16th century Dutch lens crafter Spinoza and trying to figure out what that means. And when you look in the work of Spinoza, what it means, what he wrote, is that God is the sum total of all the mathematical laws in the universe. And there's an appeal to authority that goes on with the transmission of knowledge from Christians from ancient days. And there's an appeal to authority that goes on when we look at a scientist and they reveal things that can be validated and proven over time and can be relied upon and used 
to get further down the, the understanding of how things work in the universe. But when Spinoza says that it's the sum total of the mathematical laws of the universe, what does he mean? Is a Does he mean a physical law? Is he talking about the rules surrounding gravity? Is he talking about the rules surrounding mass or the speed of light? Is that what he meant? Or more broadly, is the sum total of the mathematical laws of the universe the sum total of all knowledge and experiences, period? And it seems to me, in terms of a philosophical logic, that you'd be ready to have an encounter with that which is beyond space and time when you've accumulated for every single point within the space and time continuum in question. So how can a dot possibly ever imagine or have an understanding of a line? It wouldn't. But the collection of all dots put together might. Because all dots put together will have an understanding or could have an understanding of the entire system from the ground up. Just like the entity that the creator would have had a system from the sky down. And only when those are equivalent could a real co meaningful conversation be had, is the theory. And so I imagine not a man, but a, a creature, an entity, a life form of some kind, trillions of years, billions of years from now, finally being the ultimate benefactor life form that accumulated all this knowledge of every single point in time and space, somehow figured it out and has knowledge of all of them, and now is knocking on a door, a door that's not even like a door that LA and I would think of as a door. But he's doing the proverbial knock. And the creator of all the rules of time and space on every planet, personal, impersonal, and otherwise, the ultimate entity, God, creature, opens the door. In my imagining, the entity opens the door and says, come in, I've been waiting, or whatever, some pleasantry. And the creature walks into the door and now a conversation is had such that what L.A. calls justice means that in a fifth dimensional explanation, there was a valid purpose for the suffering and the experience of every life form on every planet of every kind, including every man that ever lived. And the right answer will be presented and discussed. And this answer could not possibly be known by L.A. or myself, because we're baton carrier 704246-7-B on a backward planet. And so we're not ready to hear the answer, because we're incapable of imagining it, we're incapable of understanding it, but we could both agree where the point of commonality that I suspect we share is that when L.A. talks to God, all will be revealed, and L.A. will know the, the reason and the justice and the outcomes, and for whatever reason we'll engage with the the God entity, I assume he'll be on clouds in heaven with drinks and whatever appropriate things are to be had and worshipful and, and delicious. Likewise, I expect that entity that gets to the final door that says, we're now I'm ready to see what's on the other side. All answers will be known or provided at that point, including every possible answer that could account for every little speck and piece of dust or lifespan or man, including J. Scott, whose function was to get us a tiny bit farther down that journey, a journey that J. Scott Harden is capable of, of taking seriously and conscientiously. I don't think most, most humans take their journey as conscientiously as they could. And I feel as though it's my, my gift and my curse to perceive this problem and say, it's critical for me to do my part. And someday, 
even though L.A. does can't really imagine it very well, a dolphin will pop up out of the water with a question, or, in my sensibility, a creature observing a record of life on Earth from 50,000 or million years before will pick up this copy of this episode of the Up Your Dialogue podcast and will have learned something useful or meaningful that they didn't know that will help along that space train of love process, at the end of which all will be revealed in cosmic ways that are right or wrong, and it wouldn't be up to Jay Scott and L.A. To, to validate or verify what these could be that are right or wrong. Both L.A. and Jay Scott are going to agree that the nature of the universe, the rules of it, and the morality of it isn't up to us. We're not in charge of the universe. God is, or a creator, or a fifth dimensional entity, or whatever the name is. But it isn't up to me and my friend here on tonight's podcast to decide the rules on behalf of God and say what these are. Either one of us will admit that we're not the creator and we didn't make those. So no self-respecting vision of a journey on the space train of love will be without an invitation to all listeners and all humans and all species that are capable of understanding it, be it on this planet or anywhere else in the universe. Welcome aboard and welcome to the journey. I'll go on record to say that, um, you know, I live out here on the Carolina coast. And so um, I often go to the beach and walk along the beach and I see the the dolphin fin uh, not too far from where I stand um, or where I sit sometimes and take in the scenery. I find it relaxing. I watch the, I listen to the waves come in and I watch the dolphins swim in front of me oftentimes. And it's uh, it's very much a pattern to it as they come in and out of the water uh, one after the but the day that one of those dolphins comes out of the water and speaks to me and tells me that they've accepted Christ as their Savior and shows me in the Bible um, the word of God that they've carefully kept over millions of years in the dolphin community, I'll be first to accept them as, as Christians on the, on the love term. So let that be known. We've also had discussions um, along these lines. I wonder if we were invaded by aliens at some point. Um, I would expect those aliens to come off the plane and show me their Bibles. Um, that would be an expectation. If they didn't, and they showed me some other book, the Book of Mormon, or the, or uh, or they claimed Allah as their their Lord and God, or or some other kind of fifth dimensional entity, then I would I would have to to question my Christian faith. So I I wait I wait for the experiences, um, possibly a million years from now, maybe or a billion years or a trillion years from now, maybe that experience actually take place. Uh, should the universe survive that period of time. Um, interestingly enough, the door has already sort of happened. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speak to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you uh, all the things that need to take place after this. So that was the Apostle John that had that vision on the Isle of Patmos. Um, um, and so we already have a record of someone on the train getting to the door and uh, having a conversation with the person inside of the door. Um, and thankfully enough, it didn't take four trillion years for that to happen. Uh, the deity was gracious to uh, give us a glimpse of that. Um, and those of us who um, who read that and believe it are, are thankful to the deity for, for giving us that revelation. So otherwise, which I don't even think trillions of years could bridge the gap on that one. Uh, but he bridged it for us uh, very quickly. So... I mean, we've we've had some uh, some continuity in the discussion as far as uh, things that Jay Scott brings up in the space train of love that are are very much like um, what has been told in the story of 
um, uh, in, in, the, in the biblical stories by the deity himself. And we see the idea of justice being grafted into the, into the space train of love by the idea that even though J. Scott specifically isn't important um, in, in and of himself to the deity, uh, he has an important role to play and somehow uh, the deity is going to explain exactly the importance of, of that role. Um, in Christianity, we believe that one day all things will be explained as well. Um, we'll be present for the explanation, thankfully. Um, and the idea of love in Christianity is uh, given to us by the deity himself. And so we don't make up the idea of love or make our own ideas up of what love is. It was shown to us, both uh, given us the explanation in his word and also shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, who displayed the ultimate measure of love when he sacrificed himself for the world. And so greater love had no man than this, and he laid down his life for his so we have the true concept of love displayed by the deity himself. Um, so uh, it's nice to see the idea of love being grafted into the space train. Um, it's interesting to understand a deity that uh, would be able to give J. Scott the concept of love to put into his space train um, and yet not be able to display that love for trillions of years, possibly even longer, and only be able to display the love to the person who walks through the door. However, being able to explain how um, the deity in the same way did love allowed space and time to continue until the train was able to get to the door. It's an interesting concept, um, the purpose of which I'm not fully clear on, other than to, outside of time and space, the four trillion years wouldn't have the same magnitude on the deity as on a creature that's transversing the line or standing on the dot and can't reach out into the three dimensions. So now the Bible says a thousand years is a one day and one day is a thousand years in time, really. Um, is meaningless from the perspective of God, a lot less meaningful than the perspective of man. But the idea that the space and time was created in the first place is really an idea that can be expounded upon by human beings. The dolphin is there yet. Um, and we have no concept as as of yet to the being that will will be greater than us outside of God himself, the deity himself. And so there is, even in the space train of love theory proposed by J. Scott, there is a bit of faith and belief being demonstrated. Um, that the space train of love even exists, that um, we aren't like the atheist proposes, uh, purposeless, meaningless, random stardust whose ancestors were fish. Um, some of the diehard atheists tell me that I should just throw away the idea of God and the idea of the space train of love or any type of journey outside of space and time and just be content with my purpose, purpose random ancestors or fish existence, because really that's all there is. And if you want to be a faithless creature that throws away all beliefs, then, you know, I, I suppose you can take that option. But as J. Scott pointed out, there's really no journey involved. There's really no understanding to be gained outside of the scientific method. I believe, in addition, that um, it was uh, Einstein who also said that he wasn't an atheist, preferred to call himself an agnostic, talked about the atheist God, um, didn't really believe in life. But there you have the difference. And I think we at least can glean that from the podcast, that you have a difference between a creature that declares that there is no creator, no need for a deity or God, a random product of purpose startup and our ancestors are fish, as opposed to the true thinking agnostic isn't willing to accept that and believes that there is something um, and that there is purpose gained the whatever that's regardless of how long of the time it takes. Um, I can accept that. 
a lot easier than I can accept the person who has decided there's no meaning in that, that all there is is what we smell and taste with our eyes, and to go above any of that is pointless. Um, because that's really what separates us from the animal. What separates us from the dog. The current idea of the dolphin that we have a very smart creature, but has no concept, any kind of deity or no point or purpose to go there. Um, we should reduce our... And so the thinking agnostic proposes an idea of how something can exist outside of space and time without going so far as to say that that deity has revealed himself to us. And I think the distinguishing factor, the deity that's responsible for the space train of love doesn't reveal himself. The deity that's responsible for the Bible and, and Christianity has revealed himself to us. He cares enough to do it. He wants us to come through the door. And there's purpose in everything that's being done because justice in every action is purpose in every word. And ultimately can say the reason that we have preserved the word and passed it down being the Christian form of the baton is the deity has commanded us is because he's given us the word from outside of space and time and wants us to share that word, uh, all of his. I don't think the space train of love is too far out, although it doesn't give me a revealing. And so it's up to me to pass that baton to the next person, to pass that baton to the next person, to pass that baton to whatever the next in hopes that the dolphin will walk the beach one day and have a discussion. And they have to have faith that they may happen, believe that they may, without interaction with the deity at all, without us having any evidence the deity cares, has any type of justice. We don't know that until we get through the, because the feeling is, and I think that's the one thing that's from the space train and love idea that I like that I see out of Christianity. Um, the deity that created us cares enough to reveal himself to us, to come to the pale blue dot, reveal himself to us, instead of us having to put our faith in a fifth dimensional that either didn't care enough to do that, or didn't purpose to do that, or isn't going to reveal that to us until we get to the very edge of the multiverse, or the fifth dimension, in which case, at that point, I'm not sure how J. Scott would be able to understand what that type of love is, or would even be an ex partake in it, or to be subjected to it, or to feel the best. And so, although I see the continuity and I see the comparable ideas between them, I think there's some things that are missing that um, could potentially be missing from it because, I mean, the idea has to be thought out further by billions and trillions of more beings extrapolate and understand it. It just doesn't do a whole lot for Jay Scott and I, who sit here on this podcast to understand he's a fifth dimensional entity who's saying, man, in another trillion years, these guys are finally going to get it. Or does the fifth dimensional entity even, can, can they even perceive of us? He's not directly responsible for that we even be sitting somewhere off in the fifth dimension saying, well, that poor Jay Scott, he's really only this small level above the dolphin swimming off the coast. But in another trillion years, maybe they'll get it. So the theory is interesting, um, compatible in some respects, but in those specific respects, the main one being the lack of revelation, I think, is missing the theory. And it'll be nice if it'd be nice if something similar to a revelatory experience could come out of the space train of love, but it may be more palatable. Wow, that was a fun episode and an unusual one in that we really have talked about some abstract. Uh, the the main theme was you know the nature of existence and the afterlife and the unfolding of the universe in ways that could be shown through a Christian lens and in ways that could be shown through. A lens that is not Christian, but one of the takeaways I, I get away from this, and not for the first time in my discussions with LA over many years, is that it's fair to say, it would be fair to say that the perspective that I'm <clears throat> mapping out for listeners about this space train of love uh, wouldn't have been possible 
without the context and the history of a great many Christians who've been here on earth. In other words, it'd be fair to say that I am partly and largely a product of the Judeo-Christian Western world. And I will not deny that, just as uh, even among the deists that were of the Founding Fathers, or even a, a fellow like Einstein, these are all products of a Judeo-Christian Western world and tradition. And so when I say that to listeners, current or of great distance in time and space, this is why the Christians are among our friends and among our teachers, whether we agree with every point and turn of what they tell us. We wouldn't have been in here either way without a couple thousand years of them preserving and sharing and telling us about their traditions. You, you can rest assured, I think a future historian on the space train a million years from now will acknowledge if it wasn't for the Christians, this space train would have taken a lot longer and we wouldn't be as, as close or as hopeful that one day a fifth dimensional entity, a creator, who for whom a trillion years and a second could be the same thing. But in the journey of men, the fact that the Christians have been here to share with us and teach us is important. And I consider them no less ultimate friends on the space train than the cool dolphin who will be like, yeah, we had this Bible too. It took us a while to figure out how to talk to you, but here's our stone copy from Atlantis, which you think of as Atlantis. That's goofy. It's really part of, it's really something. And here it is, and we're going to have to have a water tank on the space train because we need them also to join us. But the Christian people are the ones that I have learned the most from and the most directly from of any creatures. And for that, a journeyman on a space train of love is grateful. And for my friendship with LA, I'm personally grateful because it's helped me learn a few things during my journey also, more than a few. And it seems impossible that our astrophysicist friend Neil deGrasse Tyson will ever hear a podcast such as this. But if he does, I would like him to record five words as an audio clip so we can use it. The Space Train of Love. And with that, I bid our listeners a good night, and we'll see you soon. That's a good good episode. I think it's important to um, take away some interesting points, Um, regardless if uh, the listener agrees with anything that we said or not. Um, regardless if you're an agnostic, an atheist, or a Christian, or a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or anything in between or around. Um, the idea that we need to learn from each other, the idea that um, you know, we didn't get on this podcast, uh, and you know, I didn't tell Jay Scott that he was ignorant or stupid, or, or he just needed to um, crack open a Bible and, and read some stuff. I mean, it and, and he didn't get on the podcast and say that you know, my belief in God is attributable to the flying spaghetti monster and the belief in Santa Claus. And, you know, I don't have any reason or logic upon anything. And all I can do is just blindly believe and have faith or all these things that Christians are attacked for. And, and in, the same, in, in the same token, the way that Christians respond to your run-of-the-mill agnostic or atheism or, or atheists by not seeking to try and understand or not seeking to try and have an honest dialogue or conversation with them isn't a good approach. And so regardless of what your beliefs is, as a, um, you have to see how this type of a dialogue um, is helpful in many different ways, uh, not only to be able to speak and communicate across worldviews, but to be able to, you know, learn from somebody else who doesn't believe the same things you 
uh, to be able to gain a perspective from someone who has a different worldview or looks through a different lens. It doesn't mean that I have to believe everything that Jay Scott does in order to communicate with him. It doesn't mean that Jay Scott has to convert to Christianity in order to communicate with me. It means that we're human beings. We both have a interest in what lies outside of our mere existence. We both are humble enough to understand that the universe that's been created is not all about us. It doesn't rotate around us in the pale blue dot. And we come together on these type of basic ideas about humanity and, and our existence. And then we can diverge and have different ideas about what that ultimately means. But in the end, we're both human beings. We both have the same types of ideas and thoughts. And we both want to communicate with each other. And this just isn't happening in our current environment. Uh, for some reason, if you believe in God, that God exists and someone else doesn't, then we just have to take shots at each other, you know, make fun of their faith, belittle somebody, uh, make them sound less than you are, uh, you know, try and ex tell them that there can be no logic or reason within faith, within the belief system or within a, um, a faith-based idea. It it just doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't further the conversation. It certainly doesn't uh, push that space train any farther down the road. Um, and it's not helpful. So regardless if you are a listener that is a Christian that believes in God, or if you're an atheist that doesn't, or if you're an agnostic that doesn't know, um, just know that you can have conversations with people who don't think like you and don't understand things the same way. And you might find, if you do that, that that person who doesn't believe the same things you do isn't a whole lot different in regards to their humanity and what's important. Um, and although my hope is always that people will read their Bible and the deity will reveal himself, those who he hasn't, it's not my purpose to do that. And it's not my purpose to try and convince someone um, that God exists, really. Uh, that's up to the deity if the deity exists to do that and not me. So I simply communicate what I believe and it's up to the listener or it's up to anybody else to take that out, take that information in, and then do something. That's what a dialogue is all about. It's not about attacking the other person or, or, or in some way trying to belittle the thoughts and ideas or to make them sound less than you. Um, it, it's about learning. Christians learn from each other. Human beings learn from each other when you communicate well and communicate, communicate properly. Get your ideas across, whether it's the space train of love or whether it's a Judeo-Christian God or whatever the case may be, communicating that information is what's important um, to either the gospel or, in the case of Jay Scott's ideas, the space train of love. Communication is important in both of those. Otherwise, the space train of love doesn't exist. Otherwise, the gospel doesn't go forward. So that's another comparative idea between the two of us. Hopefully, you've seen that we have a lot of similarities and that we've discussed for a long time over the years. And um, my guess is that you probably do too. Whoever you are out there, and you probably have some basic common human characteristics with both Jay Scott and I. And probably you've been able to get something from this conversation that's going to benefit you in some way, regardless if you ultimately are on the space train of love or you're accepting of the gospel, or if you're your run-of-the-mill atheist that is out there lurking. Um, hopefully this has been beneficial to you. Hopefully you'll come back and listen to the next one, uh, whatever that next podcast may be. And we're going to try and do it every so often, hopefully drop them on Mondays or Tuesdays. And the topics are always much different. They, they can they can range from a wide variety of podcasts in the last 22 or so episodes that we've done. If you go to upyourdialogue.com, you can see them there. You can talk to us on Twitter. 
Yeah, we want to have dialogues. We want to talk about it. So if you're open to that kind of thing, then you should be a fan of this podcast, regardless of your belief system is. So with that being said, until next time, take care and be well. Thank you.